If you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1. We're actually going to be several different places this morning, but we're going to start in Joshua 1, and then you follow along either in your copy of God's Word, which I hope you brought with you. Now, you can also follow along on the screens behind me if you want to follow along with Scripture that way as well. Joshua chapter 1. We're starting a series this morning called Essential Disciplines. And I wonder what word or words or thoughts come to mind when you hear the word discipline. Are they positive thoughts or negative thoughts? I started thinking about different ways I could title this series, and I really didn't like the word discipline. Because if you were like me, growing up, discipline was not a friend to me. Discipline typically did not have good connotations because I typically was not a good kid. So discipline often meant something very negative for me. I I try to think back of all the times that I've been disciplined. And I can't remember all of them because there are too many to count, but a few of them stand out in my mind. One of them was I was somewhat of a defiant child, believe it or not. I don't know if you knew that about me. My family can certainly testify to that. I hated cleaning my room like all kids do, but I was very defiant in not cleaning my room. And I can remember one particular night, my mother coming in and saying, Trey, you are going to clean your room before bed. And me standing in the middle of my room with my arms crossed telling her, no, I am not. Well, this went back and forth for not nearly very long. It was pretty short-lived because my mother was somewhat of a disciplinarian. And she said, fine, if you're not going to pick up your toys, I will pick up your toys. And she went and got a large black trash bag and proceeded to put all of the toys in my floor in that trash bag. She said, here's the deal. I'm going to set these toys outside on the front lawn. If they're there in the morning, I will dump them in your room and you can pick them up then. If they are not there in the morning, then you've just lost all your toys. I should back up a little bit. We did not live in the best neighborhood. Our house had been broken into a number of times, and there were known criminals in our neighborhood in South Florida. Those toys would not have been there if there was a black bag on the front lawn. And I freaked out. Of course, I immediately went to bed. I wasn't a believer. If I was, I'm sure I would have prayed. What I did not know is my mom grabbed those toys and brought them inside after I fell asleep and put them back out there early in the morning to have the effect that she left them out there all night. And she dumped those toys in the middle of the floor and I proceeded to put every single one of them away. That discipline was not a fun discipline. On the flip side, I can remember discipline from my father. He was not a disciplinarian. And my mom and dad were not together. When I stayed at my dad, I got to eat cereal for dinner if I wanted to, sugary stuff. I could do whatever I wanted pretty much. He was, he was pretty lenient with us. Now, he was fair and didn't let us get hurt or in trouble. But at the same time, we had some leniency. Until one day, I can remember a specific temper tantrum I threw. And I remember this like it was yesterday because my father was not a disciplinarian. But I remember throwing a fit of which I remember the circumstances. It wasn't worth throwing a fit for. And my dad grabbing me and sitting me down on my bed and telling me to sit there till I calmed down. Well, being the stubborn, rebellious child I was, I didn't. I kicked and screamed. And I don't remember this, but I think I spewed hateful words towards my father. And it's the only time in my entire life I remember my father ever spanking me. Oh, that sticks out in your head when it's the only time it happens. And it was fully deserved. Discipline for me was not a good thing. I got sent to the principal office a few times in school. One time in particular, it was in kindergarten because I I had played a game called Boys Chase Girls. Did you ever play that when you were in kindergarten? All the girls take off running and the boys have to chase them. 
Now, here was the rules at our elementary school in kindergarten. If you caught a girl, you were supposed to kiss her. Here's the deal. In kindergarten, the girls are all faster than boys. So it never happens, except I found a slow one. (laughs) So I laid one on her. I married a slow-running girl, too. That helped me out. I laid one on her, and I immediately got sent to the principal's office. Now, that discipline wasn't so bad, the principal talking to me, but the discipline I did not enjoy was when her father showed up after school. Now, he didn't have the authority to discipline me, but the stares and the talking and the yelling that I endured was discipline enough. When we think of discipline, we don't always think of positive things, do we? They're not good memories that we have of being disciplined. As a matter of fact, there are other aspects of life that we look at this word discipline in. Usually it comes in with maybe a diet, that you're trying to eat healthy, and are you disciplined enough not to splurge on that chocolate cake, right? It's something that you want and can't have. It's a a negative connotation. Or maybe it has to do with exercise. Are you disciplined enough to get up every day and go to the gym or go run or whatever your exercise regimen is? Do you have the discipline to continually do it? Again, a negative connotation, right? Nobody says, I am so blessed to exhaust myself today. No, I am disciplined to make sure I exhaust myself today. It is something that we make ourselves do that we otherwise wouldn't want to do. When I think of the word discipline, it does not bring up good thoughts. But I I racked my brain for a different word for this sermon series. Because of all the negative connotations that discipline seems to have. I thought of words like like habits, or rhythms, or characteristics. But none of them really help encompass what the word discipline is. And so this morning, I want to kind of, before we even get into our our message of this specific discipline, talk a little bit about what I mean by the word discipline, so that we don't bring our negative connotations into this sermon series, so that we don't think back to the time we earned a whooping or a spanking or or a punishment, that we don't think back of making ourselves do something that we don't want to do. Can we define what a discipline is and why I chose the word discipline? First, I chose the word discipline because it's a biblical word. You will find the word discipline in Scripture. More than that, a disciple is another derivative of the word discipline, and we are called to be disciples. There's two characteristics of a discipline that I want to share with you this morning, and if you take notes, they're not in your fill-in-the-blanks, but maybe jot them on the side to help you remember this. First, and we'll talk about this every single week, Spiritual disciplines are actions, not attitudes. They're actions, not attitudes. That's why a word like habit doesn't really fit in there, or, or characteristic, because those are kind of things that we are or, or just kind of become. They're, they're states of mind. A, a spiritual discipline is something we do. It's active. You, you don't just have a spiritual discipline. You do a spiritual discipline. And then secondly, spiritual disciplines are biblical, not personal. It's important that when we look at spiritual disciplines, there are things that Scripture prescribes. They're they're ordered in the Bible. Otherwise, anything could be a spiritual discipline. We can take some liberty, couldn't we, if it wasn't biblical, if it was personal. But we could misuse that, that verse that says, do all things for the glory of God, and we could say, 
my eating of this chocolate cake. I'm disciplined every day to eat this chocolate cake, and I'm going to do it for the glory of God. My spiritual discipline is gluttony, right? We, we could do that. That's not what a spiritual discipline is. Spiritual disciplines are specific disciplines, commands, actions prescribed in Scripture that we're going to find. I've got seven spiritual disciplines we're going to share over the next seven Sundays. And I I want more than anything for us not to think of the word discipline in a negative connotation. Because our spiritual disciplines are not there in order to punish us. They're not there in order to make us do something we otherwise wouldn't want to do. They're there to show us what actions will strengthen our faith. They're there to, to teach us these are the things that if you will do, you will grow closer to God. And in that light, they are positives. As a parent, I've begun to realize that even disciplining your child is not a negative, but a positive. It's very difficult as a child to see the goodness of discipline, but as a parent, you can see how it shapes your child to grow the way they're supposed to grow. This is the positive light that I want to look at our spiritual disciplines in. Seven disciplines that will help you grow in your faith. And the first one is Bible study. Now, of course, everyone knew this one was going to be on the list. If you hear there's a spiritual discipline coming somewhere, everyone knows one of the major ones is read your Bible. Pastor, you tell us every week we're supposed to read our Bible. You, you share with us every Sunday from the Bible and every Wednesday from the Bible. We, we know we're supposed to study our Bible. But can I ask you a question? Even though you know you're supposed to study the Bible, how many of you actually study the Bible? I didn't ask for a show of hands, but I'm assuming it's a good representation of how many of us actually really dig down and study God's Word. This morning, I want to look at, at first of all, Joshua chapter 1, but then several ways or reasons why we should study the Word of God. And I hope that when we're done, you will understand that that this is not just something that we're check-marking off of a list, but this is something that will help you grow closer to God. Joshua chapter 1, verses 7 through 9, says this, Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous." As we read these verses, Joshua 1, 7 through 9, I wonder if you ask yourself the question, do I feel strong and courageous? Do I I feel strong in my faith? Do I feel like, like God is with me everywhere I go? Time and time again, I have people come to me, sit down in my office or or give me a call on the phone and say, Pastor, I don't know why, but I feel like I'm just distant from God. This is a conversation I have often with people. I I, I know he's there. I know that it's me who's moved. It's not him. But I don't feel close to God. And I I don't feel confident in my faith. I I wonder if, if the reason why we feel so distant from God is because we have not 
embraced the spiritual disciplines laid out for us in Scripture. I wonder if the the reason why we lack courage, why we feel like we lack strength, is because we're not studying the Word of God, the book of the law, that we're not meditating on it, that we're not reading and intaking God's Word regularly. I want to look this morning, not at, here are all the reasons why you should read the Bible. Because the reason why you should read the Bible is it helps you grow in your faith. Okay, that's easy enough. Instead, I want to look at some characteristics of Scripture that maybe help give you the why behind the what. Help you give some reasoning on how Scripture is so powerful. So if you have your bulletin, you can follow along and fill in some of these blanks on some characteristics of God's Word that will will change the way you approach it. First, we have to understand that Scripture is written by the Holy Spirit. Scripture is written by the Holy Spirit. This is not a book that is written merely by human thoughts. Instead, God himself is the author. We read that in one of the most famous verses about the Bible in all of the Bible, and that is 2 Timothy three sixteen. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Some translations will say all Scripture is inspired by God. Now, literally, that, that word in the Greek means to, to breathe out from God. It's a, it's a spirit-breathed, if you want to get example or exact. It is a spirit-breathed document, all Scripture. Everything in this book is breathed from Him. Now, where else in the Bible have we seen God breathing into something? I really think of one other main occurrence that we we hear of God breathing. And that's all the way back in the book of Genesis. God speaks stars into existence. He speaks uh, plants and and animals into existence. He speaks the mountains. He speaks the seas. But then he forms man with his hands and he reaches down and he breathes into him. What's the significance of God breathing into man? That is God putting his image on a part of his creation. It's God's inspiration. Do you ever think that you were inspired by God? You were created in his image for a specific purpose and specific meaning. God didn't just speak you into existence. No, he breathed you into existence. The breath of God is a mark of God's inspiration. The breath of God is is God's way of saying, this is mine and it's special to me. This is something that that is not just a part of creation, but this is something that is, is, is mine and bears my image. And in scripture, it is God's and it is his very words. God breathed, inspired every word of scripture. We read in, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, that this book is not from human beings. It says, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter tells us specifically how this book was written. It wasn't as if some men got together and just thought, Let, let's make a cool story. What's even greater about this passage as we read it is it it shows us that God indeed did use human beings. That's why scripture is is not one long, monotonous, boring story. It's not as if you hear the same voice from Genesis to Revelation. God used human beings and their characteristics and their personalities. 
That's why when you read Psalms of David, they're poetic. And you can almost hear a tune behind them. They're almost musical. And yet when you hear the the law of Moses, it's very to the point and and straight. and, And this is matter of fact. That's why when we read the four Gospels, you hear the same story. But, but in John, you almost feel like it's, it's written by an English major who's, who's flowery and, and wants to communicate love and, and peace. And, and you, you read Luke's account, and it's almost like you, you're reading a, a, a medical document. This is the specific details of what took place. We can see that God has used people and their personalities. But every single one of those authors... All of them were carried along by the Holy Spirit so that everything they wrote is exactly what God intended to have written. All scripture is inspired by God. It's written by God himself. I think we forget that sometimes. There's a lot of books that you may enjoy reading, a lot of authors that you like, a lot of popular books or or novels, but none of them have an author quite like the word of God. The Bible was written by the Holy Spirit himself. This is God's very words. And because it was written by God itself, what we find is that Scripture is written without any error. It is perfect in every way. The Scriptures are without any error whatsoever. There are no mistakes. There are no accidents. Let me go ahead and share this with you. There are no contradictions now, some of you, that kind of raises some flags because maybe you've heard or been taught or, or have people say to you, well, Scripture is full of contradictions. You know how you respond to them? You ask them, can you show me one? <laughs> Typically, they can't. There are some places in Scripture that, that feel like they're contradictory to each other, but did you know there is a, not a twisted explanation, but a logical, obvious explanation to every contradiction in all of Scripture? That you can explain why in one chapter it says 700 and in another chapter it says 70. You can explain those things. Why you can hear Jesus saying this phrase here and, and in the same context the author writes a different phrase there. You can explain very easily those things. None of them are difficult. I've not come across a contradiction yet that doesn't have a good logical explanation. History has has shown us that places in Scripture previously thought to be impossible to be true, we've uncovered outside biblical documents that have shown us that the Word of God proves to be true. Cities that thought were were non-existent and and impossible or, or made up have been unearthed in the Middle East, exactly where the Bible has said they would be. It's amazing that while the Bible is not a historical document or a science book, It is historically and scientifically accurate. There are no accidents in the word of God. All scripture is without error. And that makes sense. Because who is its author? But the perfect God, the Holy Spirit himself. What we read in Hebrews 6.18, it is impossible for God to lie. The book you have in front of you is true. And we know it's true because of who wrote it. There are no errors. There are no mistakes. Everything in here is exactly what you need to hear. In 1 Corinthians, or I'm sorry, 2 Samuel 22, verse 31, the word of God is described this way. This God, 
His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. This book was written by a perfect God and is a perfect book. Now let me ask you, have you read any other book that can claim that? Have you read any novel? Have you read any biography or nonfiction book that you can say has no errors whatsoever? Can you find any document in all of human history that can say emphatically every word written down is exactly right? And the answer is no. Certainly not a a document that is not only one book, but a composition of 66 books. And all of them are perfect and true. Scripture is written without any error whatsoever. And the last quality, again, that I think we forget, is that Scripture is written specifically for humanity. The Bible was written for you, so that you would know about God. It wasn't written necessarily just so so the facts would be out there. It was written because there's a purpose behind the Word of God. There's a, a message that God wants to communicate to man. And so He, through His Spirit, spoke to the authors of Scripture to give you a perfect document that has a message specifically for you. That's why in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, we read, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke. Hear that? God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. In these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. Did you catch that? God has a message and he is speaking in the Old Testament to the prophets. In the New Testament, through Jesus Christ, God is speaking a message. He has something specifically to tell you. It's not just a book that we read through and say, that was nice. It's a book that we read through and say, the Lord wants me to know something. Let me ask you a question. If the Bible is written by an all-loving God who who loves you perfectly, if the Bible is written and it is completely true without any error, it's exactly right. And if the Bible is written specifically for your benefit, for you, an all-loving God writes a perfect book to you, can I ask you, why wouldn't we want to read it? Have you ever thought for a second, if only there was an instruction manual for life, I think God laughs when we ask that question. (laughs) I wrote it perfectly. Exactly what you need to hear, tailored to you. There's a message in the Word of God that transforms our lives. The Bible is not merely a historical document. The Bible is not nearly some information about a religion. The Bible is God, the perfect God's message, written perfectly for your benefit. Why, then, would we ever want to put it down? God has a sense of humor. I was talking, Tracy and I get together to pray from from time to time, and and we were praying this week and talking about different places we were reading, and I told Tracy, God has a sense of humor. God has put on my heart earlier in the week that I needed to, to read a book of the Bible that is not often read by a lot of people. And so I don't know why, I just, it was on my heart, I need to start reading Chronicles. First Chronicles, let's start there. 
Nobody reads Chronicles. When's the last time you've read the book of First Chronicles? How many of you all have never read the book of First Chronicles? How many of you all are starting to ask yourself, is that really a book in the Bible? You know? So I open up to First Chronicles and I read chapter one. And what do you know? There in First Chronicles chapter one. If you want to read it, you can do that. It begins with a good old genealogy, right? So-and-so begat so-and-so. Okay, let, let's read through the genealogy. And I'm, okay, Lord, you want me to read this? I'm going to read it carefully. And I recognize a few names. That's nice. Of course, I'm reading on my tablet. So I see chapter one. I get to the end of chapter one. I flip over to the next chapter. And what do you know? It's a continuation of the genealogy. And so-and-so begat so-and-so and was the son of so-and-so and so on and so forth. And okay, I recognize a few names. That's fine, Lord. Let's get to the good stuff. Chapter three. Guess what? It's a continuation of the genealogy. I'm going to go ahead and save some time in this sermon. The first nine chapters of 1 Chronicles are genealogy, right? As I'm reading this, I'm going, God, what, what's the purpose? <laughs> Why am I reading this? And I'm reminded that these words are God's perfect message specifically for me. It's amazing what a little bit of Bible study will do. When you start to learn why those genealogies are there, it's a proof to the people who were reading it that David is who he said he was. It's a proof that the Messiah is coming from a lineage that was promised that would come. It's not a here are a few names, but listen, if you want to know, there are nine chapters telling you that God really is doing what he said he would do. Because God's word is perfect and has a message specifically for us. The entire message of scripture is exactly that. It can be summed up in this. God has a saving plan for you. The entire message of scripture, no matter whether you've been a Christian for a day or for a century, No matter whether you you are skeptical about Christianity or if you're an atheist altogether, the message in this book is God's plan is for you to know him and here's how you can know him. God wants to reveal himself to you and here's how you can have salvation. Listen to this powerful verse in John chapter 5, verse 39. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Scripture has the message of eternal life. And Jesus makes very clear that message is found in knowing him as Savior. This morning, we have a discipline before us to read the word of God. Not because we're we're forced to do it, but because a perfect God who loves you perfectly wrote a perfect book that has every instruction you would ever need for all of eternity with a message specifically tailored for you that Jesus Christ makes possible you to have a relationship with the Almighty God. I wonder if we can commit to discipline ourselves to read this perfect message that God has for us. As we come to our closing prayer, I would ask you to to consider, am I reading the word of God the way I should? Do I understand the message contained within it? Geared specifically to me, and can I commit to knowing God's salvation because of his written word? Let's pray together. Father, what an amazing truth to know that we hold your words in our hands. 
Lord, I thank you that you love us perfectly. Lord, you created us and breathed life into us. We're special to you. We bear your image. And because of that, you want us to have a perfect relationship with you. Lord, we all have strayed and fallen. and Lord, we need to hear your word because we, we're sinful individuals. Lord, I thank you that your word that we have testifies to you. We thank you that this word we have testifies to Jesus Christ and the salvation he gives. Lord, let us not take it for granted. Let us find it a privilege to pick up your word every day and study it. Lord, we pray that you would teach us and change us through your word. Help us to ask questions when we're confused. Let us dig deeper to know who you are more and more. And Lord, through reading the scripture, may our relationship with you begin if it has not started or or strengthen because of its words. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your revelation to us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.